Hello, and welcome to Did You Do Your Homework, the pop culture podcast combining ac- Hmm. Yep, great. I was trying to do that off the cuff. This is why I have the doc in front this of me so I can read- This is why we have a script, yes, Peter. Yes, yes. Hello, and welcome to Did You Do Your Homework, the pop culture podcast connecting academic ideas to popular media. My name is Pete Romberg, and I'm, I'm getting through this week, this year so far. Uh, you know, as best as any of us can. With me, as always, is my co-host. Uh, Martha Sullivan, and sometimes I think that I am not. <laughs> yeah, this is... Uh... <laughs> It's been kind of a rough week for uh, democracy this week. We're recording on uh, January 11th, and five days ago there was an attempted insurrection uh, to, you know, overturn the results of a uh, democratic election. So today we're going to be talking about political idealism and cynicism. Uh, Which, I will say, we picked before the events of Wednesday. We did. We picked this because not this... Uh, uh, one week from when this episode drops is going to be the inauguration, um, which will hopefully be peaceful and good and will represent a the closing of one book and the opening of another, though not before, hopefully, um, consequences are meted out um, to those who need that. Uh, but we picked this before things went off the rails in our democracy, and it'll be real interesting to be talking about it right now. However, before we get into the mucky muck of our homeworks and our topic and all the rest of it, it's only fair that we share with you what is stuck in our heads this week, uh, whatever piece of pop culture that we're currently consuming that we want to talk about. Uh, Martha, what is stuck in your head this week? Uh, so this is not my real answer, but I did just want to mention that for anybody looking for some measure of joy right now, um, I highly recommend looking for videos of... Um, people who were at the DC insurrection who now have found themselves on the no fly list mm. and unable to get home. Um, uh, Middle-class white people uh, experiencing consequences for the first time. Yes, it is. It brought my cold dead heart, a great amount of joy to watch uh, particularly the white Karens at baggage claim. Mm. Um, you know, screaming and crying because they were not going to be able to simply get on a plane and go home after trying to overthrow the government. Mm -hmm. So as a, a tweet I saw said, uh, stares in Muslim. Yes, I also enjoy the uh, the me colon reaping. Yes, mm. this is great. <laughs> me colon sewing. What the heck? This sucks. <laughs> I also saw a me colon uh reaping no yeah wait you sow first then you reap cool i've i'm a, I'm a yeah. city guy uh yeah. me colon reaping listen we need to turn the page here and let bygones be bygones <laughs> <laughs> um but anyway what is actually stuck in my head um it is the beginning of the year which means i have sent my i have set my goodreads reading list for the year it is equally as ambitious as last year because my hope is that at some point Reading will be fun again <laughs> for me. Um, but I, I'm listening to an audiobook that I'm quite enjoying. I'm in the last hour of it. It is from an author named Lucy Foley, 
who has been described as a modern Agatha Christie. Hmm. And the name of the book that I'm listening to is The Hunting Party about a group of uh, a group of friends from college who are now in their early 30s go to an extremely remote um, hunting lodge over New Year's Eve and one of them uh, ends up dead. So you have two timelines in the book, one which is happening on January 2nd after the body has been discovered, and then the other one which is happening in alternating points of view of the days leading up to the incident where you're learning about all of the secrets that everybody is keeping from each other. Mm. And um, you also don't know, like I've only got about 50 minutes left in the book and I have a pretty good idea of it, but they haven't told me explicitly who's dead yet. So there's a lot of, yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of like, who is like, who died, who probably killed them. Um, you know, learning about the the relationships that these people have had for ten years and how like no one really knows each other. It's been a it's been a very entertaining listen, mm-hmm. um, and I'm listening to it because I'm also waiting for my hold to come in on Foley's new book, which is called The Guest List, which was pitched as a sort of modern take on, and then there were none. So you have mm. a a group of people at a wedding on an island, and somebody ends up dead so it's a locked room mystery kind of deal uh sorry um you <laughs> you said that and immediately i was thinking of all the like covid island posts from this summer of like me hanging out on my private island don't worry all my friends got covid tested or whatever uh and i'm just waiting for the the murder mystery version of that to come out in a year this is like that, only I personally don't want to murder every person <laughs> at the party. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> some of the, the uh, I guess they're not necessarily protagonists, but some of the characters are sympathetic. Yes. <laughs> um, what's stuck in your head? Oh, what is stuck in my head is also a book. Um, this has been on my reading list for a while, but after uh, the events of the last couple days, it jumped up to the top of my list. Uh, it is called The Field of Blood, colon, Violence in Congress and the Road to Civil War by Joanne B. Freeman, who is a uh, history professor. Um, it does what it says on the tin. It's about violence in Congress in the antebellum period. Um, many of us are familiar with the Brooks Sumner Affair from AP history or college history or what have you. Uh, that's where a abolitionist senator, uh, Brooks, nope, Sumner, uh, was beaten uh, by a slave-holding senator um, on the floor of the Senate with a cane. Uh, real bad. However, violence happened all the time in Congress before the Civil War. Uh, people were pulling knives on each other. People were pulling guns on each other. People were uh, dueling, um, obviously not in the, the chambers themselves, but like dual threats uh invitations were issued back and forth um people were just attacked and this like attacked each other in the streets uh which was considered fine and acceptable as long as you know you um warned them in advance that you're going to be doing that so that everyone could arm up uh it was a lot of the 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 norm was southern bullying Southerners bullying Northerners because Southerners held to a code of honor and a code of dueling that Northerners did not. So they would 
be much quicker to resort to or to threaten resorts to violence. Um, and when Northerners more likely than not backed down because that wasn't how they did things in the North, uh, they were labeled as cowards, which lost them a lot of political capital. Um, so very interesting book, very obviously shedding a lot of light on early history that we don't know or think of, but also very discouraging for today because it's also a story of increasingly flagrant violations of norms, increasing um, resorts to violence, uh, what once, like, um, alliances between North and South that were tied together by party unity, dissolving as sectional differences became more important than party ties, um, so increased polarization on a couple different angles, um, all things that we're kind of dealing with now. Obviously, we don't have fistfights breaking out in the House of Representatives yet, um, but, like, that Give could be a road to, Right, exactly. But, but who knows? One of the things that has been very discouraging for me, and I say this because I am a white person, so I have not needed to confront the reality of this until recently. Um, our system has always been broken, and, you know... I, I'm I'm pretty sure that at this point we just need to scrap the whole damn thing and start over. I've I've been thinking about this a lot with um like the dueling Twitter war or like, you know, Twitter posts of this is not who we are versus this is exactly who we are. This is who we've always been. Yeah, exactly. And I I've I like to think that it because I the historian to me says absolutely this is exactly who we've always been. Um, but I do get the point of this is not who we are, which is an aspirational claim, I think, or giving them the benefit of, you know, the best possible read on it. It is an aspirational claim, and that aspiration is good. This is not who we want to be. This is not who we aspire to be. This is not what we conceive of when we conceive of ourselves. That's all well and good, but it does need to come up against the fact that, like, you know, we have not yet become the better angels of our nature. We are still down in the muck, uh, and not getting any further out of it anytime soon. I was listening to a podcast called Pod Save America the other day. Big fan. Um, fan of the pod. And they 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 played a portion of um, Warnock's acceptance speech. Mm-hmm. Basically, the, the subject of the, the podcast episode was how there are two Americas. There is exactly the division that you were talking about. There is the idealistic America that turned Georgia blue um, that Warnock is talking about in his acceptance speech that made me weep like a small child. Mm -hmm. And there is the other America that happened on the same day that allowed an armed crowd of middle-class white people to walk into the Capitol and threaten to kill our elected officials mm -hmm. spurred on spurred on by some of those very same elected officials and the like, president of the united states and the president of the united states so we have to hold these truths together like we we have to hold both of these ideas in our heads at the same time because they are both true yeah and that does mean that we cannot discount the facts and realities of the one that we don't like yeah, in favor of the idealistic one. Um, and that, that dissonance 
or not even dissonance, but it, it gets hard for me to see the good parts. Um, when so much of my adulthood has been learning how to face and reckon with and fight against the bad parts. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, that Speaking is, of which. I was going to say, that is a perfect segue <laughs> into what we're talking about um, this episode. But uh, so I guess we, we've begun a little bit early, but we are going to take a quick break here. And uh, when we come back, we'll be diving deeper into our two homeworks, uh, Wag the Dog, a, a deeply cynical 90s movie, a very Gen X-y, uh, and a bunch of West Wing episodes, uh, kind of the opposite. Um, none of these, we're not really I'm, i mean i'm sure in our discussion but these homeworks don't get into the uh the bad side of u.s history more just the cynical side um so we're going to be a little bit tangential to the conversation we just had but stick around and we'll be right back And we are back. So, uh, as mentioned before the break, we are talking about Wag the Dog and a couple West Wing episodes in this episode about political cynicism and idealism. Uh, for various reasons, we're going to start with Wag the Dog first, because it came out first of these two, uh, you know, I'm going to say like two homeworks. There's a couple West Wing episodes, but really we're going to be talking the West Wing in general, so take it as a piece of media. Um... And also because uh just felt bad to end on the downer note. So we're going to start on the downer note and go into idealism. Um, so Wag the Dog is a 1997 uh, political comedy uh, directed by Barry Levinson and starring Dustin Hoffman and Robert De Niro. A screenplay by Hilary Henkin and David Mamet. Um, basically, the president is accused of sexually assaulting an underage girl in the Oval Office. And that's never interrogated in the slightest because we go right into damage control. Um, Robert De Niro is a political fixer who gets called in, um, to get this story of sexual misconduct in the Oval Office out of the news cycle, uh, because it's like two weeks before the election. So he comes up with the plan of let's basically fake a war with a country. Uh, they choose Albania, uh, because no one knows anything about, about Albania. Um, he goes to his buddy Dustin Hoffman, who is a Hollywood movie producer, and together they stage a fake war uh and it works um at the end of the movie the president is re-elected and everyone uh celebrates the victory peace accords and return of a a soldier caught behind enemy lines during the war in albania all in quotes um i never seen this movie before i thought it was like for all it's, it's cynicism and everything else uh it's very funny and it's nice and short. It's not quite the ideal movie length, but it's very close. Yeah, you had seen this before. Um, I suggested this a as the homework, and you very quickly, like, doubled down and confirmed it as a good choice. Um, yeah, I needed to remember how it ended mm -hmm. before I could confirm. And then I read the Wikipedia synopsis, and I was like, oh, yeah. Oh, yes. <laughs> 
Uh, oh yeah, it, it does end with uh, Dustin Hoffman being assassinated by the CIA because he wants to tell everyone of his role. Um. Yes, that was the part. It's like Dustin Hoffman gets assassinated, the president gets reelected. Um, yeah, it's a very we have always been at war with East Asia mm, mm-hmm. kind of kind of movie. Um, but yeah, it is very entertaining. It is very funny. And when you stop to think about it for even just a moment, it is extremely depressing. <laughs> well, and also um, like deeply problematic. Well, yes. Uh, one of my favorite scenes in it, just by the by, is the um, when the model is doing the, uh, is it a video or a photo shoot? Are you talking about Kirsten like, Dunst? Yeah, as the like Albanian refugee. Yeah. And she's like, can I put this on my resume? And they're all like, no. <laughs> sign, sign this. What is it? Your security clearance? <laughs> yes. But yeah, oh. I, I, I thought of this movie um, because, well, I, I verified this movie for you um, because it it does it does a lot of things. Um it speaks to a sort of nihilistic, I think, view of the the role, how how the government is serving the American public. Mm-hmm. Um, you described it when we were off mic as a very Gen X view of politics. Yes, it's very Gen X and it's very 90s in the sense that it is a... It has no faith or trust in the institutions, and I think it looks down on people who do. Yes, I would agree with that. Oh, um, the, the scene that makes me think of that especially is when, like, uh, Dustin Hoffman and all his various, uh, you know, the people who he's brought on to produce this war are all like, oh, yeah, I didn't vote. Yeah, like, the the idea that they would have participated in this act of democracy is like, well, that's foolish. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think part of part of the part of what the movie is saying is that they don't participate in it because they know it doesn't matter or because they feel like it doesn't matter um, because they have seen how stuff operates like behind the curtain. Yeah. Yeah. They they keep saying De Niro, especially like, of course it happened. I saw it on TV. Uh, and like he's yeah. saying he's saying that knowingly and winkingly and sort of sending up that culture but that also is just totally bought into that culture Mm -hmm. i also thought that this movie was representative of the kind of disdain that i think hollywood has for the government or at least um hollywood wants us to think that it is very liberal and in a lot of ways it is in a lot of ways it is really not Mm -hmm. Um, but i think that publicly hollywood tends to be very disparaging of government and the way that a particularly conservative government Mm, sure on the other hand i think in this sorry this is sort of like two different directions um one i think this movie takes the piss out of hollywood as well as government, like Dustin Hoffman's character and like all the people he surrounds himself with, I think are supposed to be people to be like mocked a little bit. Um, True. On the other hand, and in the totally opposite direction, I don't think we ever know the political party of the president, right? It's just like, it's two interchangeable white dudes are our candidates. 
Yeah, I think it is intentionally generic because <clears throat> I think part of what the movie is saying is that it doesn't matter. Yeah, 100%. Um, meet the new boss, same as the old boss kind of mindset. Yes. Uh, and uh, from a pure cynical money grab operation, that means both liberals and conservatives can laugh at this because they can assume that it's their guy who wins. Yeah, it's like, um, oh, what's his name? It's like how the Colbert Report pulled off a scam for like 10 years because everyone <laughs> thought that he was on their side. Right. Uh, which actually is a, a searing indictment of conservative media, but uh, we're not here for that. Also true. <laughs> um, yes. This movie did very much call to mind to me, the idiocy of, and I guess I should preface this with if, if you're listening to this and you haven't realized it yet, Pete and I are both pretty far left liberal. I think Pete probably pushes the leftism more than I do. Mm -hmm. Um, well, actually, I guess I shouldn't put a label on you if... No, that's accurate. <laughs> um, but it, it, it brought to mind a little bit the idiocy of people back in the 2016 election saying that, like, Trump and Hillary are the same. It's like, well, no, they're not. Right, like, right. Just because you don't like government doesn't mean that both parties are the same. And that kind of felt like how this movie was written. It's like, well, it's all bad, so it doesn't matter. Yeah, who. yeah. Which to me is is just a deeply like it's a deeply 90s and it's a deeply Gen X mindset of, you know. And I think it was also probably more true when this movie came out. Yes. Um, like the... in the in the late 90s, early aughts, I think it was generally a little more true that both parties. Both. I mean, I think that in the 20 years since this movie has come out we have seen a radicalization of certain portions of, <laughs> of, of the spectrum that uh, make them less, that make them less so. We have seen the radicalization of uh, one entire political party. Yeah. Um, no, but I, I think if it was more true, it wasn't all, it wasn't completely true, but I do think it was more true when this movie came out. Yes. The nineties was absolutely what, like, it was a weird area of a time of flux because we had won the cold war and we didn't have another enemy to fight. We were taking a victory lap and the economy was doing good. Everything seemed, you know, for, for middle-class white people, everything seemed pretty good. Um, and so the difference between Republicans and Democrats was much more wonky and much, it felt less um moralistic no uh, maybe but it, it felt less cataclysmic if the other side won you know like sure it, 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 for both the, the the temperature was dialed down because everyone was kind of doing fine and i'm using everyone in quotes here but you know you know what i mean um, people who are represented in the media were doing fine. Um, and obviously that has changed as polarization has been ramped up as, you know, it, it, starting with Newt Gingrich, every, like the Republicans just took the gloves off and decided to go to war for total power. Um, and then, and here we are. So it, it, now the idea that both sides are the same is laughable.
I don't really have a response to that. Yeah, I mean, I basically just agreed with what you said and threw a little bit of historical context into it. Um, yes. <laughs> um, anything else you want to talk about with this before we go into the West Wing? Uh, we kind of knew going in that we'd have a lot more to say with the West Wing because it's a, uh, it's bigger, it's, stop. it's crunchier. Um, stop qualifying our homework. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you liked it. Oh yeah, I I really enjoyed it. Um. Woody Harrelson was fantastic. Uh, Forgot he was in it. Uh huh. Willie Nelson uh, was a delight. I was shocked when, like, Willie Nelson was, I think, like, fourth build. <laughs> like, oh, these are some weird credits. <laughs> yes. Yeah. All okay. right. Well. All right. So, on the other end of it, um, you know, where Wag the Dog is very cynical, um, we also wanted to talk about. Uh, the West Wing, which is very idealistic. Um, the West Wing started in 2000, I think. Yes. Mm, could be 99. Um, and specifically the episodes that we are going to be discussing are season two, episode three, the midterms, season four, episode six, game on and season seven, episode 14, election night, part two. Um, West Wing, West Wing began these... September 1999, but the midterms, the first episode we're looking at, was 2000. Um, I basically picked a handful of the episodes that I felt were the most fantastical out of a show that is a liberal fantasy. <laughs> um, and the reason, and I will, I will walk our listeners through the reasons that I, I picked them. In the midterms, President Bartlett goes to a dinner party that is being uh, attended by a bunch of radio and media hosts, one of whom runs a very conservative um, radio show where she gives advice and answers questions that run the gamut from like medical to theological to moral. Um, and he confronts her with a bunch of Basically, he says, I like the part on your show where you say that homosexuality is an abomination. And she says, I don't. The Bible does. And he pulls out the Leviticus verse and then asks her a bunch of questions about other Leviticus and um, Old Testament verses, like how his uh, chief of staff works on Sundays. So when is the appropriate time to have him stoned? And I'm interested in selling my youngest daughter into slavery. What do you think is a fair price? My uncle wears mixed fibers, uh, mixed fibers clothing. Like what is an appropriate, uh, like how is it appropriate to put him to death? for? Basically shoving in her face all of the ways in which the Old Testament is no longer applicable to our lives. <laughs> and it is important to remember that Bartlett is the Democratic president who is also incredibly religious. Mm-hmm. Um, good Catholic boy. Yeah, he's a good Catholic boy who is also the Democratic president of the United States. Mm-hmm. Second episode, Game On, is the debate episode during his reelection campaign where he faces off against the uh, Republican candidate for president. and <laughs> Who looks like Mike Pence. Yes, um, who looks like an older kind of more rougher, yeah. looks like a rougher version. Yeah. Um, but pulls out all of the so the, his his 
performance in the debate is he's been struggling with his image as an intellectual elite. And then finally his party is like, just go with it. So the debate is him ripping governor Ritchie, a new one, and basically just running intellectual rings around him in a way that I think if you tried it now, uh, the media would eviscerate you as a candidate. Yeah. And finally we have election night part two, where at the end of the Bartlett administration, we go through a whole election process with our new Democratic candidate, Matt Santos, a uh, Latino. Is he a senator from Texas? Ooh, great question. I'm going to say he must be. I don't know. He's an elected government official. He's a Latino. He's a Democrat. He's from Texas. He wins the presidency his opponent is Alan Alda, who is a Republican candidate who is also pro-choice. <laughs> Alan Alda's existence is also very like. Mm. Oh, um, uh, Santos was only representative. Okay, that's fine. Yeah, uh, representative. Um, but again, these were the handful of episodes, and I, I messed up, Pete. Um, my husband pointed out that really one of the episodes we should have picked were when Bartlett voluntarily surrenders himself to the 25th Amendment. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that <laughs> would be voluntarily timely. invokes the 25th Amendment yeah. <laughs> on himself. Um, but yeah, the show as a whole is a liberal fantasy of what politics should be. And, um, you know, kind of holding holding up this ideal of what politics could be if everybody was a little bit nicer and a little bit smarter and not just like out for themselves and their own power. Um, and I picked these particular episodes to show how in my 2020 worldview, like Bartlett is a candidate who would not exist. Like there's, there's no way this administration would even um, get ground now. I don't think. Yeah. There's um, a couple years ago, Hmm. Might have literally been 2019, but it could have been 2017. You know, classic. Uh, it was either six months or eight years ago. Um, pieces started making the rounds that the West Wing kind of broke liberals' brains um, because it made them think that wonkish policy proposals and good, compelling arguments and just one good speech would sort of like that was the that was what politics was you just you have some good policy proposals you give that one good speech you get some people in the room and you talk to them and you convince them that you're right and then we can all pass some laws um and uh that's not like that is the ideal of how politics should be played and that is how politics is frequently portrayed on the west wing um and that's not to say that that's not how it happens sometimes but in the McConnell era of the Senate, that is not how politics worked. Um, and so pieces were going around that the West Wing sort of was bad for Democrats and was bad for liberals because it made them think politics was X, when really it's Y. Um, I think there's some truth to those pieces, and I also think that they're very uh, overblown and over-determined. Um, uh, um, but I I do think that the, the Sorkin view of politics is a very distinct view um we were talking about this before we started recording that it is a very pro-intelligent to the point of being almost insufferably so 
it posits a world where a deal can always be made, where if you if you offer the right things to your opponent and compromise on the right things, that your opponent will also compromise on the right things. And at the end of the day, you will all make a deal that is the best deal for the American public. Well, and it also posits a world where rhetoric and speeches can sway opinion. Um, and, you know, it's like looking at the Trump approval, disapproval rating for the past four years, it like there's spikes, it goes up and down, but it is remarkably consistent. Like it goes up and down within like five percentage points over four years with everything that's happened. Um, rhetoric and speechifying is not changing people's opinions. Um, or, or I should say one big speech, one, you know, like the, the changes that are happening are through the slow boring of hard boards, as it were, um, to quote, I think Max Faber, uh, but like it's, it's the gradual change through constant dialogue and, and pressure rather than the one big moment but also recognizing that like it's tv you need those big moments it's sorkin he likes those big moments well and also like i i'm i don't want like if i'm going to watch a tv show about politics i don't want it to be a show that reflects the politics that i am experiencing in my day-to-day -day life like yeah those politics suck yeah i don't i mean <laughs> i don't want to watch the news when i am watching tv if I, that makes sense <laughs> um i i don't know if this would be too strong to say for you but i feel like we both love the west wing Is, i do yeah um aaron sorkin has hurt me um but I do love I do love the Western kind of despite myself. Right. And like, I, I think that's important. like we. I think one thing that people who love the West Wing like to do, not all but many, is to also trash the West Wing um, because there's a lot to trash. There's a lot to critique. But at that like, but it's coming from a place where like, yeah, I've seen seasons one through three, like, I don't know, four or five times. Um, I've watched the same episodes every Thanksgiving, like. Well, it is it is disingenuous. So we all know that Sorkin is not a great guy and has made a lot of things that are not great to women. Um, a lot of the West Wing isn't super great. Season towards one women. is real rough. Um, a lot of the West Wing isn't great towards people of color. Um, but also it is disingenuous, I think, to write the whole show off because of that. Like there is. There are some legitimately great characters. Charlie is one of the best characters that has ever been on TV. Mm -hmm. Like, full stop. The uh, um, uh, Charlie is also, the fact that Charlie, sorry, yeah, the so fact that Charlie is black is also incredibly important to his character. And I, I do give Sorkin credit for that because I think it is really easy to cast somebody of color into a role and like to do colorblind casting where it's mm -hmm. like, well, anyone can play this and that's important too. But I also think it is important that Charlie it's important that Charlie is black and in a, it, particularly in a show that is not always super great um, towards people of color. I, I think that that is important to recognize. Um, well, and, and part of it too is like this show began in 1999 and ended in what? 2006. Um, 
television at that time was not especially in the early seasons was not necessarily great for women was not necessarily great for people of color um you know look at friends uh true so like i not to excuse it but to contextualize it some of the things that now read as especially for like women like what read now as like really weak and problematic at the time were was much more par for the course and even quote unquote empowering i think um yeah like i cj is a great character mhm yeah um mary is it her surname mary the the head of security detail um in the fifth season yeah i don't know she's great uh abby is great oh Ab- yeah okay like, yeah there we go abby um uh, uh 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 donna janelle uh janelle maloney yeah is great and and all of them are different like mm-hmm. it, it had room for all of these different kinds of women um also the the, the, uh, the pollster who's deaf yes um God, I'm not looking at IMDb, so I can't look up there. <laughs> uh, keep keep um, talking, stall for time. <laughs> I got this. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, Joey Joey Lucas is the character. Yeah. Marlene Martin. Um, Matlin. Uh, yeah, Marlene Matlin. Um, I I I actually think it is more egregious. All everything that happens with Kumar is fairly cringeworthy. Um. Oh, the, the fake Middle East country? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's also very indicative of the time that it was produced. In. Yep, and and I get why it's it's that thing where it's like, I get why you didn't say Kuwait, but... Uh. Yeah. Um, but I also, I to um, change gears a little bit, I also think that this one is interesting to look at in the context of a post wag the dog like i feel like the west wing is in conversation a little bit with the things that wag the dog is indicting yeah yes wa- in a in an interesting way yeah wag the dog is presenting both parties as basically the same and everyone is corrupt um uh who is it uh Anne Hesh's character is like, like Robert De Niro is brought in as a fixer, but Anne Hesh is, I think she, if she's not part of the government, she's part of the campaign. Um, nope, she's a presidential presidential aide, so she's literally a member of the government who's bringing in a political fixer to like fix a campaign, which, as we've all learned in the past four years, is a apparently completely acceptable if you're the Repu- if you're a Republican, uh, and b hella in violation of the Hatch Act. Um, <laughs> But the West Wing would never do that. Like, the West Wing is the classic. He, Bartlett makes the point to do the campaign calls from the uh, the, the residency. Um, just be- thinking about because that. Because he doesn't want to be, like, even the the impression of impropriety is something to be avoided. Um, and And so this is very much a... No, like, this is a direct rebuttal to what Wag the Dog is postulating. Um, Government is good. It can help. It's not 
you know, I voted for Kang, I voted for Kodos, kind of, you know, might as well, it's all just the same. Uh, and it's principled people working hard to make everyone's lives better. Uh, sometimes they make mistakes, but they're all deep down, like, good people doing what they can. The West Wing also encourages um, civic involvement in its audience. Like, part of what Wag the Dog is saying is that it doesn't matter if you engage or not. Mm -hmm. And West Wing is saying, oh, no, actually, it matters a lot. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I just, I, you know, I, I picked these handful of episodes and then ended up watching a lot more. So I watched the episode that is election day right after the debate and um, Josh goes to the polls and all of these people are asking him questions about like, oh, I basically he's asking they're asking him questions about ways they have filled out their ballots that would invalidate (laughs) them. And the whole time he's going, what are you doing? What are you talking about? You've done it wrong. And it turns out that they have all been paid to drive him crazy. But the, the act of voting is taken very seriously on the West wing because it tells you that your involvement and your vote matter. Um, which is optimistic and idealistic in a way that makes me I don't know that that part works for me always because I I am very I get very fired up about voting rights. <laughs> well, it's like that that part is so indicative like the the, the part about how it it like like the show encourages civic participation even if it's like just through the act of showing everything and showing how important voting is and showing you know what is happening in government it gets you involved in it in a way and it, that's such a part of the show's dna that you know they they put on a live stage show that was recorded and broadcast over what hbo i think this summer as a get out the vote message like ain't nobody gonna come out with a you know 25 year anniversary wag the dog get out the vote show but the west (laughs) like you know but like the west wing a television show that ended 15 years ago is still getting its actors together to do that civic engagement um because that's so integral to the show and i i also think that it's a little not ironic but um Civic engagement and that kind of grassroots organizations are what changed the outcome of this election. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the fact that they that that cast was still willing to get together to do stuff like that, it's like it really mattered this time. Yeah. Um, which well, is, I feel, very true to the spirit of the original show. Yeah. Thinking about the the specific episodes you signed, um. I I was thinking a lot about the um uh the game on subplot where we get introduced to Will Bailey um played by uh, uh Joshua Molina um where he is the campaign manager of a congressman who has died but he is not ending the campaign because you know he and the rest of the staff think that it's important to bring up that his you know the opponent that they're running against uh, seems very corrupt and not good uh so even if 
you know, it's the classic, even if we don't win, we can at least raise these issues. Maybe the next challenger can do good. Um, or who knows, maybe this can, you know, be bumped to a special election, all the rest of it. But it's like fighting the good fight, even when it seems impossible and hopeless, uh, is kind of at the core of the West Wing, which I think is a useful, you know, it's uh, all of it. Like we, as as we've been doing and as we've talked about, we trash on it, of course. But at the heart of the show, it's a good message to give. Um, and And as political fantasies go, I think it's one of the best. I'm interested I'm interested to talk just real briefly about and maybe maybe we've already covered this and you can just clip out what I'm saying um but why why does media like this and I mean that by I mean that for both Wag the Dog and the West Wing like why does this stuff matter Hmm. in like a big picture sense? Like why does it matter that we get these kinds of um, not demonstrations, portrayals, I guess of the political landscapes we inhabit. Mm -hmm. Like, do we think that these kinds of stories matter apart from, I mean, I know that we just dissect, I know that we just discussed in detail the, the, the grassroots um, voting uh, awareness campaign that the, the cast of the West wing put on, which did matter a very great deal. Um, But going back to the source material, like, why why are these stories that we enjoy watching being told like why do they why do they matter to us i guess is the mm-hmm. best way i can think to put it i've i've got two different directions to go on this one um one is <clears throat> it's a like is it a chicken and the egg situation so thinking of of like wag the dog and and the west both of them but in different directions are they reflections of what people think government is like at the time, or are they themselves creating that perception of government? And I think the answer, of course, is both. As with any media, it is in dialogue and therefore shaping the dialogue with the discourse of the time. Um, I think it's very evident that the West Wing influenced a lot of people to go into politics. Um, like so many millennials uh, uh, in politics now are there because of the West Wing. Um and so having so on the one hand portrayals of politics are going to be in dialogue with with the broader culture and therefore are shaping the broader culture and are shaped by it so they're useful because they serve as a mirror to what people are thinking politics is like and they can influence what people think politics is like zooming out even more like we are in a representative democracy, and in order for a representative democracy to work, you need buy-in from the citizenry, and there needs to be an understanding of, of the, the function of government, the process of government, the importance of government, and the legitimacy of government. And none of and if you don't have that, and you don't have buy-in from the citizenry, well, you're going to lose your democratic republic pretty soon. Um... Do you think part of what Wag the Dog is doing is trying to galvanize viewers? Like to say, this is what happens when you are apathetic to the people who are in your government? 
No. No. <laughs> I, I don't think that at all. <laughs> uh, I, I don't think it is trying to galvanize viewers at all. I think it's trying to... Um, I, I think as any good satire, it's trying to poke fun at what government and Hollywood look like at that time in that moment to the people writing it and directing it, um, and then dial that up to 11. So, like, yeah, th there's the satirical poking fun of it, but I don't think there's any, like, call to action or galvanization, even, like, between you, the lines. You don't think... You don't think any part of it is calling on the audience to be more critical of their government because it's complacency that allows them to get away with the stuff that they do in the movie? No, I don't I don't think. I don't think Wag the Dog wants the audience to feel accountable at all uh, because it wants the audience to feel like at most, I think it wants the audience to feel angry at hollywood and at politics but i don't think it wants them to be self-critical okay i i think that's a like it's too much of a light-hearted like satire to invite self-criticism i think okay not sure i totally agree but okay. i get that reading i just i i think that there's some level of let's look behind the curtain. You know, this is what you get when you have disengaged. I, I don't know. I don't think it's as direct as a, like, this is what happens when you don't engage. But I, I think that there's, is a little bit of, we get this way through complacency. So, you know, up. <laughs> if anything, I think it's more of a, like making fun of the rubes, who who can have the wool so easily pulled over their eyes by hollywood and and everything um like i th th there's the through line of like the don't change a horse in midstream commercials that like all the hollywood folks are sneering at um and then at the end those those ad guys are taking the credit for it um yeah and i didn't quite know how to read that i i i was thinking like on the one hand those commercials are uh hilariously bad um on the other hand i kept waiting for a thing where it's like i i was waiting for the joke of like those commercials actually being impactful and hollywood being out of touch but then the final scene where like the ad guys are are on the um you know the the pbs show or whatever the the talking points show taking credit for it and dustin hoffman gets all indignant about it i couldn't tell if that was supposed to be there like, obviously, that's there for Dustin Hoffman to get indignant about and, you know, want to go tell the world what he did. Um, and I couldn't tell if that was supposed to be also taken at face value of, like, those commercials actually did have an impact. And Hollywood is so concerned with, like, its shoes and its, um, you know, uh, uh, what was uh, uh, it's its fad kings um, that it couldn't connect with everyday Americans because we love everyday Americans. Um, the other, like, the other interesting thing with Wag the Dog that I couldn't get a read on was, like, there were lots of lingering shots on what were probably supposed to be, like, undocumented service workers or, like, workers in general. Um, we, like, there was a, a lingering shot as, as we're introduced to Dustin Hoffman of, like, his cleaner. Um, 
as they're sort of walking past her and ignoring her. And then there's the the tractor driver who, like, gives them a lift after the, the crash um, and who turns out to be undocumented. Uh, but there were just multiple points of of people that, like, Levinson seemed to be highlighting in a way, and I couldn't tell what he was trying to say with it, other than, like, these people matter too, these people are Americans too. But it was very, I, I don't think, know. I thought part of it was the movie is so, like the characters in the movie are so involved in creating like a refugee crisis and a like humanitarian crisis Mm. while something similar is happening just as a course of like, or as a matter of like their everyday lives. Yeah. Well, like you were saying earlier, it's like Hollywood loves to present itself as liberal, but um, as we were talking about off air, it's a liberalism of, uh, as long as it doesn't change my way of life, you know? Right. Um, Still super happy to take advantage of, you know? Right, right. No, well, that, that seems like a pretty okay. good place to, to wrap up yep. unless you want to... Now we can stop. Okay. Now we can end. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Well, that's going to do it for this episode. Thank you all so much for listening. Uh, You can follow the show on Twitter or Instagram at DYDYHpodcast. Uh, You can also follow us on Facebook. If you still have your Facebook, just search for Did You Do Your Homework? Uh, Did You Do Your Homework podcast. And then get off Facebook. Yeah, right. Exactly. Um, You can email us at show at homeworkpodcast.com. And uh, since you're listening to this, you know where to find us. Any podcatcher out there. Um, make sure to rate and review us. Give us that five star and uh, tell your friends about it. As always, that is one of your homeworks for next episode. Uh, Martha, where can people find you? What are you plugging? People can find me at all the places at Magical Martha, uh, including my newsletter, which is tinyletter.com backslash Magical Martha. I'm currently sharing my perfect tons of 2020. Mm. So sign up for that to see what episodes of TV I gave 10 out of 10 stars to this year. Uh, You can also find me on this podcast feed every other Wednesday opposite when this show drops doing my other show, Love Ya, a guided tour through the wonderful world of streaming uh, rom-coms and teen cinema that I host with Pete's wife, Marin. Yes. Uh, what are you talking about next episode? I don't remember. The prom. Oh. We're talking about prom. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, I was like, I, I don't know either. So, uh... <laughs> yes, we are talking about the Ryan Murphy original uh, prom. All right. Now, well, you can follow me on Twitter at Pico3000. That's P-I-K-O-3000. Um, you know, it's Twitter. So it's exactly what you think. <laughs> if, if you've heard me talk for this long, I'm talking about it more on Twitter. Uh, Martha, what? Also, we should all probably get off Twitter. <laughs> nah, it's, it's that, that needle's deep in my veins. I um, know. Martha, what are we doing next episode? Next episode, we are talking about food. Um, specifically, we are talking about how food gets used as a narrative device, uh, in stories, what it tells us about the world of the story, and how, uh, how stories utilize food to uh, develop themes um, and uh, I don't know what the second word is there. Stuff and things. 
stuff and things. Um, I am assigning the first four-ish episodes of the anime Food Wars, uh, which you can find streaming on Hulu. They have the first two seasons, both subbed and dubbed. I am a heathen, and I actually quite enjoy the English dub of this show. Hmm. But if you're a purist, feel free to go ahead and uh, watch the subtitled version. All right. Uh, And I am assigning the uh, excellent film Ratatouille. Uh, Was that Brad Bird? I think that was a Brad Bird movie. Um, Say. Oh, it turns out when you search for Ratatouille, the dish is the first hit. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I'm actually kind of surprised. So am I. I could have seen that going either way. Um, yes, uh, by the way, uh, uh, Brad Bird did direct Ratatouille, uh, so 2007 movie, it's available on Disney+, Plus. I hope, um, because it is one of the infinite, uh, studios that Disney owns. Um. I can't imagine that it's not. Right, exactly. Uh, so, that's what we'll be talking about in two weeks. Um, talk to you then, and until then, class dismissed. <laughs>